0: Today I wanted to go back to Mark chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. This is our 36th message, uh, and we have made it to Mark chapter 10. Um, I'm not going to take a lot of time to review where we have been for sake of time, but we're traveling through this Gospel, and we've made it to where Jesus is now between his ministry in Galilee, where he started his earthly ministry He's headed to Jerusalem where he will be crucified and then rise from the dead three days later. And he is in a place right now called Perea, the region east of the Jordan. And he has been ministering there as he makes his way up to Jerusalem. And today we embark on the next verses. The Lord bringing us by his providence to a sobering text today a sobering reminder of life after death, a sobering reminder of just how temporary this life is and just how eternal the life to come is, and a reminder that the way to eternal life with Jesus in heaven for eternity is a narrow path and that there is only one way there. So if you have your Bibles and you're there, let's stand for the reading of God's Word together. We'll begin in verse number 17 and read down through verse number Twenty-two, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running, and kneeled to him, and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God." Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatever thou have, And give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and he went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Father, again, as we open your word, we acknowledge this is the word of God. It is not just another writing from man. This is the very word of God to us. And so, Lord, with that in mind, again, we surrender and submit our will underneath its authority this morning, and we pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts. I pray, Lord, if there is anyone under the sound of the word of God this morning, either by way of uh, online media or right here in the sanctuary, we pray that today, God, you would work in their hearts if they've never come to a place of faith in you A place of faith and repentance. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts. And Lord, may this be a sobering reminder for all of us today. Lord, that the most important things are not the things in this life, but eternal life. And may we give our life to them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Unlike a lot of the stories in the scriptures in the New Testament, this is not a parable. This is an actual story, a real encounter between Jesus and this man recorded by all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it is done so because it deals with such an absolutely critical issue for you and I to understand. It's often called the story of the rich young ruler. Of course, Mark does not give us all those details. You might think, as we were reading that, where do you get all those details? Well, it's only Matthew that tells us that he was young, and it's only Luke that tells us that he was a ruler, but all three of them remind us that he was rich. He was wealthy. He was young. He owns a lot of property, and he has achieved great spiritual status by being made the chief of the synagogue. No doubt people had great respect for this man, those who knew them. And we might think as we read this that this is a, a young man that would be a great asset, a great addition to God's kingdom, a great asset to the team that Jesus had assembled and asked to follow him. Unlike Zacchaeus, unlike the woman at the well, unlike Matthew or Peter or the other disciples, it seems by the reading that this young man does not come with a lot of baggage, that he seems like he is a very moral man. He has quite the resume. He's wealthy, he's young, he's religious, he's sharp, he's sincere, and he's asking the right questions. We would say that this young man has it all together and he would be a great asset. But as we go through this, this morning, I want to kind of break this story up to, into very, uh, three very simple sections three simple statements this morning. Number one is this, that the young man had a worthy desire. He had a worthy desire as we see in verse number 17. Notice again, and when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and he kneeled to him and he asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And look here for just a moment. I cannot think of a greater desire in any human heart in any human life, than to know that you would have eternal life. It is the greatest question ever asked. It is the greatest desire in the heart of mankind that we would know not only how to live this life, but more importantly than this temporary life that's going to end after 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years, is what's going to happen in eternity. And so we see here there's some good qualities in this young man that perhaps we could learn from. We see, first of all, his eagerness. He came running. He was enthusiastic. He wanted to learn. He was eager to know what the answer to this uh, very, very important question was. He, was. he was eager. He was also respectful. Not only did he run, but he knelt. And he refers to Jesus as good master, And really, that's an honorable thing, considering that he himself was a man of riches, and he had rank, and he was a religious man. Adrian Rogers so bluntly put it this way, many people in America with riches, rank, and religion are egomaniacs, unwilling to kneel before God and strutting their way straight to hell, thinking they are too good to be damned. It's a pretty straightforward statement, isn't it? And it's very true. Humility is a vital step in coming to Jesus. James 4 and verse 6 reminds us of this, that God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. And the truth is, we can never inherit eternal life. We can never come to faith in Jesus Christ until we first humble ourselves before him. He was a respectful man. The Bible also tells us that this happened where? In the way, which means the highway or the Broadway, which tells us that this was a public place. And so courage was not his barrier. Disrespect wasn't his barrier. Apathy certainly wasn't his barrier. He was obviously convinced from what we had from what he had seen and heard in Jesus, that Jesus had the answer to this most important question in the world. And again, he was correct, so he had also discernment. And we also see that he was sensitive to spiritual things. This young man wants to know about eternal life. And verse 20 shows us that he was, to the human eye, a moral man. In his eyes, and perhaps even the eyes of those who knew him well, he had kept the commandments from his youth. And so this is the the kind of young man that we would choose for leadership. We would choose for a class president. Uh, We would choose as a leader maybe in our organization. He was moral, he was enthusiastic, he was respectful, he was intelligent. And on top of that, he was young and wealthy and had religious Religious status. So he seems to have it all together. And what a great question he asks here. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? When he says eternal life, you could put in that word, in place of that word, salvation. That's really what he is asking is what do I need to do to have salvation? What must I do to have salvation? And that's a great question or as the Philippian jailer says in Acts chapter 16, what must I do to be saved? And if you're here this morning and that question continues to lurk in your heart and your mind day after day and you think about From time to time, prompted by the Spirit of God, what's going to happen to you after this life ends? Let me just tell you that that is a great question to ask. It's the very best question to ask, and I hope and pray that by the time you leave here this morning that you know what is the correct answer to that and what is the wrong answer to that and that you make the right decision. Because this young man made a tragic decision. He asked a great question. But he made a tragic decision. Secondly, we see not only his worthy desire, but we see his willful decision in in verses 21 and 22. One of the clear things that we see in this text, as we see throughout the, the Scripture, is the gift of the free will of man. We also see that Jesus will not soften the message of the gospel just to get someone to accept him. And listen, in a day and age where that is prevalent in a seeker-sensitive religious culture, it is important for you and I as believers in Christ to understand that we must not soften the message of the gospel just to get someone to pray a prayer, just to get someone to make a decision, because Jesus says that there is a clear way in which you have to come to him. He doesn't soften the message. He asks this most important question, and we all have to face this same question in regards to Jesus. Jesus brought this young man face to face with a decision. He has offered him a choice between himself and God between temporary fulfillment of this world or eternal fulfillment in the life to come. The question was, and the question is to you and I, what is more valuable, God and eternal life or his own will or our own will in this present life? Let me ask you this morning, has there ever been a time when you came in humble faith to Jesus and surrendering your will under his sovereign authority, forsaking all other gods or your own human goodness, have you ever come and put your faith in him? Have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, believing in his atoning death and victorious resurrection and saying, I'm not trusting in my works, I'm not trusting in anything else other than the sacrificial death and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ who lived a sinless life and died for my sins and rose from the grave. Either we have or we haven't. A a neutral answer to that is a rejection of God. Jesus said that he that is not for him is what? Against him. We either accept him or we reject him. We either confess him or we deny him. And that is the decision that this young man is faced with there is no middle ground and notice in verse number 17 he says the the young man called Jesus good and Jesus addresses that because the problem was his idea behind good and how he saw good and who he saw as good because as we see in the text he saw himself as good didn't he No doubt he saw others as good, and he saw Jesus as good, just like he saw himself as good, and just as he saw others as good. And so Jesus is really bringing him back to this real definition of good. Look, there's relative degrees of bad, right? You might say, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, and I may not be as bad as some people, But none of us are good, only God. And that's a blow for a legalist who sees himself as good and better. Clothed in religion, Romans 3.10 says this, There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none good. Jesus is challenging this man's sense of goodness. And we've all said it, haven't we? He's a good man. She's a good woman. He's a good boy. He's a good girl. Be careful about that. I know what you're saying, but the truth is, there's none of us that are good. Lest we have the righteousness of Jesus applied to our life. It's the only way we can have goodness. Don't think, by the way, for a moment that Jesus is claiming not to be good, quite the opposite. He's making a point again that he is indeed, remember what he's been saying his whole earthly ministry? He's been proclaiming, not only am I a, a prophet, not a, I'm not just a good prophet, I'm not just a good teacher, but I am the son of God, I am God, that has been his claim, and by the way, that's his claim again here. I am not good like you see yourself. I am not good like you see other people. I am good because I am God. You see in verse number 20 that this young man sees himself as a pretty good person. His heart is deceived as you look at this. And by the way, our heart deceives us, doesn't it? Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately wicked. And so a lot of times we look at the externals, as this young man does, and we say, I'm a pretty good person, or they're a pretty good person. Perhaps he grew up like... A lot of us did or a lot of the young people today with people telling him how good he was maybe he had all the the badges all the rewards all the the scripture memorized on the honor roll and most likely to succeed and as you would look at him you would say man he's a good person and i think really he comes to jesus right here brother keith looking for another affirmation another affirmation of his own goodness and jesus is about to knock his halo off his head. He's about to show him how, I don't think it's a word, ungood, how bad, how sinful, how wicked he really is. Listen, the most damning delusion that any mind can believe is that I am a good person, that you are a good person. It's one of the great traps of Satan, isn't it? to try to get us to believe that really we're a good person. You see, the law of God is given not to reveal the goodness of man. It's given to reveal the goodness and the perfection of God. And as we see the goodness and the perfection of God, we see really how sinful we are. We see how really bad we are until we believe that we are not a good person. We are without hope because there is none good but God. And Jesus is about to open up his heart, do open heart surgery and show him his sinfulness. So in verse number 19, Jesus begins to rehearse the commandments because this is how everybody judges themselves against this standard. And the, the young man's heart is still blinded to his condition. The young man says in response to the commandments, all of these have I observed from my youth. Verse 21, I love this statement, mark it in your Bible then Jesus beholding him, what? Loved him. He still loved him. Even in his sinfulness, even in his pride. How many of you are thankful this morning that even in our sin, even in our arrogance, even in our pride, God still loves us? And that while we were sinners, he died for us. For God so loved the world in our sinfulness that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. We're thankful that he loves us. But you know what? He loves even the people that we hate. He loves those that we hate. You may say, I have no time for that person. Guess what? Jesus does. I cringe, but I've heard people say before, I wouldn't walk across the street to spit on them if they were on fire. Really? Jesus loves them. Jesus died for them so that they wouldn't have to spend an eternity in hell. Even in his sin, Jesus loves them. But listen, in love, Jesus doesn't soften the message. Because, as we've said before, truth and love always go hand in hand. They're companions. So because Jesus loves them, he doesn't lower the standard. He doesn't say, okay, you know what? You have a pretty good resume and you really would be a good addition to the team. No, he says, here's the standard for eternal life. Here's what you must do to inherit eternal life. And so in love, he reveals the truth. Look at verse 21 again. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. And because he loved him, he says unto him the truth. One thing thou lack, go thy way, and sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up thy cross, and follow me. Now there are two things that Jesus makes abundantly clear in this statement that we're going to We're going to flesh out. Number one is this. No one can be saved by keeping the commandments. No one can be saved by keeping the commandments. And no one is saved by selling what he has and giving to the poor. Here was a young Jewish man who, like so many, was resting in his own self-righteousness. But I want you to understand this this morning that salvation is not a reward for the righteous, it is a gift for the guilty. So if you're here this morning and you say, I am a sinner, I am not good, I am bad, I am guilty, then salvation is for you. It's not a reward for the righteous. Salvation does not root in the merit of man. It roots itself in the mercy of God. It does not root itself in the goodness of man. It roots itself in the grace of God. And we must first come to a place of realizing we are not good. We are in need. Jesus drops this bomb on this young man. You can't be saved by commandment keeping. All his life he had been taught in this works-based salvation, that he could be saved, that he could have eternal life. And he really comes to Jesus for this affirmation. Look at all these things I've done, Jesus. I've kept these commandments all the way from my youth. Now, what else do I need to do to have eternal life? I believe he believed Jesus was from God, but he wasn't God. He Believed he had the answer, but as Paul put so clearly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 2 in verse number 16, listen. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall Say it with me. No flesh be justified. No one will be saved by the keeping of the law. Listen, the the, the law is simply a schoolmaster that teaches us that we are bad and that we need a Savior. It's a schoolmaster. It's a teacher. The law is there to show us the perfection of God, but the sinfulness of man, the shortcomings of man... To point out our need for a Savior. And you and I can never be saved until first we see ourselves as lost. We can never, be, we can never have the righteousness of Jesus applied to our life until we first acknowledge and admit our sinfulness, our badness. Jesus reveals the sinful heart of this young man clothed in his deeds. In one statement, he reveals that he hasn't kept all the commandments. He thought he had kept all the commandments. He proclaimed. He looked at his life from the outside. And he said, I'm a pretty good person. And then in one statement, Jesus blows it all up. Now, we're in Mark chapter 10, but I want you to take your Bible and go to Mark chapter 12. Two chapters later. Mark chapter 12, and look at verse number 28. One of this rich young ruler's friends or his coworkers, one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And here it is. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Look, Jesus takes the Ten Commandments and he reduces them to two. So now go back to Mark chapter 10. The rich young ruler is anticipating affirmation. But again, verse number 21. Jesus said unto him, loving him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way. Notice what he says. Sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have the treasure in he- heaven, and come and take up thy cross, and follow me. You see, Jesus is not just a good teacher, he is God. And so he doesn't just see the exterior, the external of this young man, he sees his heart. And so Jesus here opens up and he reveals his heart. He knows exactly, not just what people see, but he sees the reality and the truth, and that is that this young man has an idol in his heart. And because he has an idol and its idol is money and because it's self-possessions and he says to sell and to give to all the poor, then he has broken the commandment, hasn't he, to love thy neighbor as thyself. He's not willing to give to his neighbor. And then he says, take up thy cross and follow me. Which shows us because he's not willing to do that, that he doesn't love God with all of his strength, with all of his might. In this statement, he reveals to him that you are a commandment breaker. Maybe externally you see yourself as a good person, but internally you have broken the spirit of the commandments. In spirit, he had broken all ten commandments, although in action he had kept them. And what is Jesus doing? He is showing him his sin. He is showing him his transgression. He is showing him that he had missed the inward essence of the Ten Commandments. Now Jesus, again, he wasn't teaching that you can go to heaven by giving to the poor. He's teaching that in ourselves, we will never be good enough to be saved. That we must have a Messiah. That we must have a Savior because of our sinfulness. See, this boy wanted to know what else do I need to do to be saved? Nothing. You and I can't do anything to add to what Jesus has already done. Again, it is finished on the cross was not a declaration of defeat, it was a declaration that the work for salvation had been finished. You can't add to it, it is finished. It is done. All you can do is realize your sinfulness and put your faith in it. And the truth is this morning, we all need forgiveness because we are all sinners. Titus chapter 3 verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And so Jesus gives this young man an invitation. By the way, just as he does to you today. He gives us an invitation to put our faith in Jesus alone for our salvation. The same opportunity that this young man has here, you have today. You can receive the gift of salvation, the gift of Jesus as the payment of your sins, or you can continue to try to pay it off yourselves, and you'll never do it. Eternal salvation is simply a gift to be accepted. And Jesus calls for a decision from this young man, as he does for all of us. In verse number 22, in my opinion, is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Look at it again, verse number 22. And he was sad at that saying, and he went away grieved, for he had great possessions. I mean, we know from the beginning that this young man really wanted eternal life. That was why he came to Jesus. But he was not willing. You say, why why didn't he receive eternal life as far as we can tell? Because he was not willing to repent of his idol to give up his God and turn in faith to the one true God. He still had his idol gold. That he was not willing to give up. And the enemy, Satan, had convinced him that it would be foolish to walk away from his love of money and things. Accepting and trusting Jesus means that you and I are turning from all else to Jesus alone. You are trusting him as Savior and Lord. Someone said this, he must be Lord of all if he is to be Lord at all. And so if you have areas and you're saying you can be Lord of this area and you can be Lord of this area and you can be Lord of this area, but this area I'm not willing to give up. I'm sorry. That's not full repentance and faith. And that's Jesus' point in this story We can't trust Jesus in wealth. We can't trust Jesus in our good works. Salvation is turning from everything to complete faith in Jesus. Acts 31 says this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You see, a lot of people, look, a lot of people want him as Savior, but they don't want him as Lord. I want you to save me from my sin but I don't want you to have any control over my life. I'm sorry, that name goes together. Lord Jesus Christ. We turn from others and we are putting our faith in Him. If not... It's just for us. It's just about us, and we are our own God. Jesus knew that this man had an idol on the throne of his heart, and he wasn't even aware of it because it was a, a hidden idol to himself and other people. You can't have, here's the bottom line you can't have your idol and God too. No man can serve what? Two masters. Eternal life is free for us to take, but with it comes a call to take up our cross and follow Jesus. It's not a flippant decision. It's not a casual decision. But I can tell you this, it is a decision that carries great consequences. Eternal consequences. Today we're all accountable. We're all accountable And you may have a worthy desire to have eternal life and be saved, but you must make a decision. There must come a time in your life where you have made a decision to repent of your sin and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And we all like stories that end happily ever after, don't we? That's why Hallmark makes so much money. You know it's never going to end bad, so you just sit back and relax and enjoy it. No matter how bad it gets, it's all going to be good. But this story doesn't have a happily ever after ending. Because the young man decided willfully to walk away sad because he was not willing to let go of his idol and turn to Christ. What a great question. What a tragic decision. What a great question. What do I need to have salvation? What do I need to do to have salvation? What a tragic answer. He was sad and he went away grieved. And the man left in the same direction that he came in. Now his direction could have changed in this moment. He could have gotten off the highway to hell and gotten on the highway to heaven if he would have simply repented of his sin and turned in faith to Jesus Christ. But he stayed on the same road, which leads us to the last and final point, his woeful destiny. I want you to mark these words in verse number 22. He went away. Would you say that with me? He went away. He went away from what? He went away from eternal life. He went away from the offer. He went away from Christ. He went away from God. He went away from the Bible. And because of that, according to the scripture, because he rejected the offer, unless he ever came to a place of repentance and faith, which the Bible never tells us he does, his woeful and eternal destiny is separation according to the authority of God's word. It is separation from God in hell. The bottom line is he wanted eternal life, but not enough to surrender himself, humble himself, and repent of his sin and his pride and his possessions. And by the way, he didn't argue, did he? He just walked away. He wanted eternal life only as an add-on to what he already possessed and truthfully in his heart. Truthfully in his heart, which God knew his heart, Jesus knew his heart, he loved himself, not God. He loved earth, not heaven. He loved the material, not the spiritual. And the truth is that this story has a tragic ending that is recorded for you and I. Why? For a warning. It's a warning for you and I this morning. And Matt and Brian, you can come ahead, but this is an important story, so important that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it. It's important because it's a warning about our soul in eternity. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, the truth is that a thousand years from now, it won't matter one bit bit whether you died with one dollar in your account or one million dollars in your account. 1,000 years from now, none of that will matter. But what will matter then is whether you accepted or rejected Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever seen this or not, but this chapter gives us the great contrast. The great contrast that we just read about of this rich, young ruler. But I want you to look down in verse number 29. Jesus doesn't mean that if you're coming to him, that he's going to make you poor. In fact, he says in verse 29, Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brethren, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. He's going to take care of you. He's your father. But what he wants you to know is that what's most important is not this temporary life. It's eternal life. And we just studied the rich young ruler. But if you look down in verse number 51, he gives us a great contrast to the rich young ruler. It says in verse 51, and Jesus answered and said unto him. This is a, a different story. A man who is blind. A man who has nothing of this world's goods. Jesus answered and said unto him, What will thou that I should do unto thee? And the blind man said unto him, Notice this word. What's he say? Lord. Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. What a contrast. The rich young ruler who had everything this world had to offer. And yet, unless he ever came to faith in Christ, is in hell at this moment. And yet a blind man with none of this world's goods lived a temporary life who knows how many years. Didn't have a lot of riches, but he'll spend eternity walking streets of gold in the presence of Jesus. Mark ten thirty one 31 is, is true, isn't it? Many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Jesus doesn't run after this man. No record of that. He gave him the opportunity, and let me tell you this. God gives you the opportunity, as he is this morning, to come in faith in Jesus Christ, but he is not going to force himself on you. Again, he's given you a free will to either accept him or reject him, just as he did Adam and Eve in the garden. He built that in us. He created that in us, and he's not going to force you to accept him. But he's offering you this morning the gift of salvation if you've never done that. Say, what will people think? Well, first of all, they will rejoice. But even if they laughed and ridiculed you and laughed you to scorn, I would not go to hell for any person or anything. I would come this morning and humble myself before Jesus and say, I need you. I forsake all others and I turn in faith to Jesus. I take the offer. I take the offer, whatever it means, I take the offer, I turn from my sin, I turn from my good works, and I put my faith in you.